Corinthians chapter 5. What can we say then, brethren? Well, we just celebrated the whole thing, the reason for our joy, our only hope, our every best and really good thought is occupation with our Savior. And it really speaks to personal relationship. I love that it's called the communion. Fellowship or communion with God on the basis of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Our personal relationship with Him is one of the greatest blessings there has ever been, or the greatest blessing you could ever have. And we really did just celebrate the most magnificent truth of all history in all the universe. And that should imbue us, because of our position in Christ, with a holy ambition. A holy ambition in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we had some wonderful questions that came out because I grabbed verses 9 and 10 out of context. And the question, very insightful, was, when Paul says at home or absent, what, what's the reference? Well, let me read it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, sorry. He says in verse 1, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, that's your body. If it's torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we having put it on will not be found naked. For indeed while we are in this tent, this earthly body, we groan being burdened, Because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. This is the heart's cry of the creaking joints, of the encroaching arthritis, of the diminished lung capacity, of the enlarged heart, of the body as it breaks down. Is we don't want our body to die. We don't want to be unclothed. We want our what's dying and mortal to be swallowed up. By life. Now, he who prepared us for this eternal purpose of an eternal resurrection body is God, who gave us the Holy Spirit as arabon, as pledge, as the beginning gift, telling you that there's much more to come. The earnest or the pledge in verse 5. Therefore, having always good, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. That's the first home and absent. While at home in this body, which we're used to, we're absent from the Lord, which is actually the strange thing. We are, it, it's, it's opposite how we feel. It's counterintuitive. While at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. What do we walk by? Faith, not by sight. Seeing is not believing. If you see, the whole faith thing is canceled. It's seeing. Seeing is seeing. This is, we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So what we think of as at home is like this, where Jesus is at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us, and we're absent from him and home in our body, but that's actually reversed. The truth is that while we're in this frame, we are absent from the Lord. And what we want to be is home with him. That's our longing. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him, for we must all appear before the bema of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for the deeds in his body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And that's kind of the paragraph break, and I'll leave it there because I am seeking a holy ambition. 
in this image that I've got on the screen behind me, I wonder if you notice the participants in the image. There are three participants the way I count it, and I'm not including God who's holding it all together, Christ by the word of his power. Of course, that's not one of the three because that's always true. The three participants, if you look on, let's see, that's the, is that the south side of the building? Is that right? Because 395. Okay, so on the south side of the hill, you can see people. Do you see the people on the hill? Those are spectators. Those people are in some sort of overlook because this is a mountain road that curves on up. And they're, they're looking at the valley below. As we said last hour, this kind of drive will make you feel like you're going to drive off the end of the earth. You'll sing hymns of praise to God if you get nervous enough. You're white-knuckling only so much, and then you've got to start singing. Anyway, uh, as you feel like you're about to drive off the face of the earth. But the first participant I'd, I'd point is the, uh, the spectators, seeing if I am going to drive off uh, the, the face of the earth. And then you have um, on the north side something that they might be looking at. What are the other participants in the image? The birds. Completely irrelevant to the whole thing. They are just there. It's, I mean, birds are pretty. Now, they're not within shotgun range of the uh, spectators, so my assumption is this isn't a hunting trip. Okay? But they are, uh, the, the, the scenery lookers are looking at the scenery, and the birds are out there flapping. So who's the third participant? the first person driver who's encountering this, the person who, this is you on this road, headed uphill at 70 miles an hour. Because you're fully aware of your provider, you're fully aware of your mission, and you're not looking back, and you're not afraid, because you know where the road goes. Your body may tell you, as I told you last hour in the opening image, your body may tell you that, that um, I'm about to drive off a cliff because the road turns and you can't see ahead of you. You can just, it looks like you go on forever. But you know, because we walk by faith, not by sight, that this road continues and it's banked properly and it's, it's sufficiently uh, surfaced and you can manage and you're going to take this turn. And the person that's been on this road a hundred times, they don't have any trouble with it. They've done it. It's that first time you ride the roller coaster that's so scary. The third or fourth time it's, it's just fun. And you get to that terminal velocity of it's just so much fun. But the first time, it's so scary. Well, you only get to go through this life once. You only get to take a step toward the purpose of God in your life. Uh, this is the only chance you get to take this step. And so I praise God that we've availed ourselves of this opportunity. We're looking in detail at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. I'll grab this one. We closed with in verse 9. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, we said that word, have as our ambition is one word in the Bible, one word in Paul's writing. It's a verb, and it's an interesting verb. It's a present middle indicative from philo to meomai. Philo to meomai. And I don't expect you to know Greek, but I want to point it out. In English, in my English translation, it says, we have as our ambition five English words to bring out the sense of this one word in Greek. And that's a lot of how Bible translation works. And this is a doozy. This is a big one. This is an important word. Philotomai. Maybe you remember last hour, I brought out some of the history that how this word was used in the first century or in the, in the centuries surrounding uh, the formation of the New Testament before and after. In the Koine period, in the Greco-Roman writings in Greek, we have an expression of this referencing the honor that one seeks from the community by doing good works. 
the honor one seeks, the mark that you want to make on history, on the world. Let me illustrate that with a really neat object lesson I can show you. It's all 3D this morning. It's about as 3D as we get. Uh, Has anybody ever looked at this thing up close? Just pass it around real quick if you want to take a look at it. It says, uh, it's, I believe this is made of a, of a special metal. It's a, it's a, a vibranium alloy. Um, no, this is made of aluminum. Um, but it's, I shouldn't be rough with it. It's ancient, ancient aluminum. Um, and it says in an engraving, and when you engrave aluminum, you know, you get this really shiny thing, and it's an old engraving. Um, can, I can't read it. Do your eyes work? Can you read that? Yeah, pass, just pass it on through. Y'all, y'all should see your communion service lid because you don't always get to do that. Presented at Preston City Baptist Church by William H. Doan. If you look in hymn number 363, um, the name of the writer of the music. The hymn was written by Fanny Crosby, To God Be the Glory. The music was written by William H. Doan. If, um, if you look over at the little park over here, it's got the swing set. Doan Park, Downer Doan Park. Donated by William Doan, the bell to our church, the old, the old bell. Did y'all know we have an actual, uh, is it bronze? We have a bronze bell, not split, not a cracked bell. That's, a, that's over in Philadelphia. But it's, it's massive. How heavy is that thing? Gary, you know. Tim, t- Tim how? 2,800 pounds? Okay, so that's, that's a lot of pounds. Would you say it's over a ton? Like about 800 pounds over a ton? Okay, we'll go with that. The wood that's the top of the thing, like the yoke that the thing would sit in, it's like, it's 200, well, it's really old. And, um, and so this was a famous man that came to, was impressed and went to this church for a time and, uh, and became world famous because he wrote the musical settings to a lot of Fanny Crosby songs. Um, he wrote uh, Safe in the Arms of Jesus, the music to that one which they still sing in England, of all places, uh, at an Anglican church services for the death of children at, at infant or young people funerals. Um, also, William Doan, um, I believe, I think he wrote the music to Praise Him, Praise Him, uh, Praise Him, Praise Him. I think he's that one. He, he did uh, several of her most famous hymns, Fanny Crosby's hymns. And, um, and, and I think that it's really... Um, special that she had this capacity to write these poems. But to me, as a writer of words and someone that can make rhymes, the ability to compose original musical composition that's a, that's a, a melody that's worth remembering, I think that's, I, that's like a superpower to me. And uh, so he was that kind of genius, um, but he didn't make his money in hymns that I know of. It, it was a, they called him an industrialist in the Industrial Revolution. And, um, and he has great honor. Because um, here in Preston, they put swing sets. And that is famous to no one except me. I went and dug this up, and now you know the rest of the story that William Doan was a person involved with our church at some point long, long ago when they were making aluminum communion services. Yeah, he's from Preston. He didn't stay here. He went followed the Industrial Revolution. One of the, um, one of the interesting things uh, that, that happened to me in seminary, I might have shared with you before, we're in a special 
uh, chapel service. When people give money, they want to be recognized a lot of times. And that, that's not a, the ethic here. We don't, we don't do that at all. We'll never ask you to buy a brick for the new building. Please. If someone asks you to buy a brick, you are being scammed. Um, we're never going to ask. We don't even ask you for money. We really don't. This is a, wor- worship includes offerings to God for his service in the advance of the gospel. We will teach that all through the New Testament. It's a major theme of scripture, but it's worship. And so we don't ask you for money. Here at the end of the year, could you just, we'll never, we never do this. God loves a cheerful giver. You give as the Lord leads you and you reap from the spirit what you sow. So go forth and conquer. But um, people want to be named. They want their name written on things. And I was in a chapel uh, at Dallas Seminary, and a, a, a person that was we'd never heard of um, wasn't like a, a contributor to the, the, the teaching or the literature from the seminary. It was a donor, had been this legacy donor all her life, and there was some sort of wealth involved, I'm sure, and it was a big thing. And she gave, this lady gave a gift of a communion service for the chapel. Well, here's the dirty, dirty little secret is that we never, ever celebrated communion in the chapel at the seminary. We didn't consider ourselves a local church, and we thought that's kind of where you do the Lord's table as the local church. So we just didn't do that. But there was this thing this lady wanted to give this gift, and I, and I, I don't know, but see, the, uh, we've, are we all done? Are you, is, it, is it making its way that way? Beautiful. Okay, okay. So, um, Jerry, don't, don't miss the message. So um, <laughs> there was this, be- it, was, it wasn't aluminum. It was probably silver. It was probably sterling, the whole thing, not silver plate. And there was this massive engraving on the service that didn't say presented at Dallas Seminary by. It said in memory of. That word memory is a big deal on the Lord's table, isn't it? Not? Is this not in remembrance of him? And the communion service said, in memory of so-and-so who'd been this big donor. And so all the, all the conservatives that I knew of were all did a big face palm. Just, oh, no, this is in remembrance of him. It's not the Lord's table in remembrance of so-and-so, William Doan or otherwise. And I, don't, I think I don't, that engraving's fine. I think it's a neat aspect of our history. But... This is what we do. We want to make our mark. And it, that, that sinful impulse, that selfish, I should say, impulse, that's part of our sinful nature, where we're clawing for significance. I just have to matter. That makes its way into Christianity and the church, and we see it. But that's not what Paul's talking about when he says you need to make your mark. We want to make our mark, and we want the honor that comes from making that mark. Philos, this word philo to metamine, Love of honor. Love of honor is the etymology of this word, to have is our ambition. But the ambition, the love of honor, that thing that we're aspiring to, is not what people think of us. It's not what so-and-so says about the sermon afterwards, the glorification of the worm, Harold Honer called it. He once had a seminary student, another one of my seminary stories. 
One of my favorite professors said we, uh, we would have in our church, the, some of the students were students of Dallas Seminary. They went to their church, and they would at times have to do pulpit supply. The pastor was sick or out. And so they had one of Honer's students as a senior, this final, this fourth-year student in his THM, uh, preach. And, they, and, the, and Honer called it the glorification of the worm. It's when the pastor positions himself at the back of the room for everyone to line up and to tell him what a great job he did. You might notice that I, I tend to avoid that uh, processional a recessional. It's not really uh, a comfortable moment for me to hear what you thought, uh, good or bad. Um, and I will say this, when visitors come and say, oh, that was the best, and we will be back usually, the more enthusiastic the glorification of the worm, the less likely you'll ever see them again. It just is that way. But, um, but Honer went through the line and said, hey, nice work, you know, good job. And he was an understated kind of quiet uh, rice sense of humor kind of guy. And he said, you know, good job. And the, and the young guy was so overwhelmed. You know, he'd had his probably first big public sermon and it was, that's a nervous moment and, and you don't know how it's going to go and the people were, were affectionate to him. And so he was kind of caught in the moment and, and, and he told Dr. Honer, he said, um, well, it wasn't me, it was the Holy Spirit. And Honer goes, oh, it wasn't that good. <laughs> <laughs> We want accolades. We want people to recognize us. And that's Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus is talking about rewards. Do not practice your righteousness for men, before men so that they'll honor you for it because you have your reward in full. But rather, go in your closet in private and pray where your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. And give your, give your alms in secret so that your Father in secret will reward you. Because if you do it for people's praise or ad, ad, adulation, you will become uh, rewarded only by that. You have your reward in full. And that's Jesus in Matthew 6 on rewards and wealth. The real wealth is what God thinks of you. And so make it about that. And so you keep your eye on the ball. It's not on what people think about you. It's what God thinks about your works, what you've done for him with his provision. Whether being at home, he says, and the last time he mentioned home was with the Lord, or being absent, and again, the last time we right now are absent from the Lord physically, understand Christ lives in us, but in terms of his resurrection body and his physical presence, he is at the right hand of God the Father. Understand what we mean. There is a heavenly temple, a heavenly throne room of God, described in Hebrews 9, that apparently the tabernacle and temple are a diorama. They're an earthly mock-up of this, where the throne is the centerpiece in the Holy of Holies, the, 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 the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. And, and the cherubs cover this, and there's the presence of God, or was the presence of God, in, in a flame of the Shekinah, the fire, representing God's presence. And so God is on this throne in this mock-up of, of, of the heavenly throne room. That's what Hebrews 9 uh, <laughs> confirms for us if we were watching closely in Exodus. And so on this, in this heavenly throne room, what we're saying is that there is a throne in the center so that if we were to approach the throne of grace, as Hebrews 4 says, for, for help in the nick of time, as we approach that throne of grace, if we could put ourselves there, if you could imagine it, off to your left would be seated a human being at the right hand of the majesty of God the Father on high. That's what we're talking about, that he's present with the Father at his right hand. And he says in the letter 
I think to the Ephesians in Revelation, one of the seven letters, he says, if you overcome, I'm going to grant for you to sit on my throne with me as my father has granted that I sit on his throne with him. The two thrones that will never let us say he's now seated on David's throne, as the progressive dispensationalists say. You can't have that. That's not what's going on right now. We're still anticipating the conquest in which Jesus will sit again on one of David's greater, David's greater son will sit on David's throne in Jerusalem. But we have as our ambition, whether at home, that's in the presence of our Savior, absent from this body, or whether absent here now in this earthly tent, pleasing to be to him is our ambition, pleasing. I told you I would tell you about this word, euarestos, which is translated pleasing, E-U-A-R-E-S-T-O-S. And I've even transliterated it there for you in English. The two key words in the passage are philotometomai, to have as our ambition, and euarestos, to be pleasing, adjective, to be pleasing. And again, um, BDAG comes to our rescue. The Arn Gingrich updated lexicon says, in the Greco-Roman world, this word eurestos is commonly said of things and especially of persons noted for their civic-minded generosity who endeavor to do things that are pleasing, meaning they're pleasing the demos, they're pleasing the polis, they're pleasing the people. It's pleasing because they get a general sentiment of affection from the people that they've done something nice for. In Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, the opening scene is of Caesar's donation, Caesar's uh, acclamation and how people think of him. When Mark Antony gives his great speech uh, to start the war um, in, in reprisal for the senators killing Julius Caesar, one of his big things is that Caesar has opened up his, all, his, all his coffers to give all of his resources to the people because he loves the people. This is the way you have to go if you're an ambitious person after the flesh under the sun. If there's no creator to serve, if there's no eternal purpose, if all there is is here and now, then once you've amassed enough, once you have a, 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 a Jay Leno garage full of cars every possible car you could possibly want, down to things that aren't that exotic, but just interesting to have because I'd like to have that particular model of that year or something. Once you've done all that you can do in the Ecclesiastes frame with all the fun and enjoyment you can extract from this darkened frame of existence, from this life under the sun, you have to start looking to things that last. And the wealthier people become, the more they want to make their Mark, I contend that one of the great driving forces behind the transhumanist impulse of going into electronics implants into humans, and they want to, they're one of the big things they talk about is the effort to transfer consciousness into an artificial intelligence. It's the desire to continue. It's the desire to go on because the great thing we're all facing is we're going to die and it's too short and that wasn't enough and I want some more and I want my life to last and no, I don't want to live to be 120. I want to live to be 120 in a body that's 35, right? I don't just want to keep going until, until I just uh, am dust and then the dust particles are still alive. So no, I, I want to... I want to live and, and have what's necessary to live. We all long for this. This is the resurrection that God has promised us. But see, after the flesh, the great love of honor, the great ambition is for people to think well of you, to please them. And so you do what's pleasing to people. You're, an, you're a philanthropist. You love honor, you love man, and so you do things that will please man. 
You make foundations. And you name, your, you name them after yourself and your wife. And then you go try to see how you can do population control in India or something. You know, for everybody's good. And you do these things to extend your legacy and to promote your name. But that's not what we're doing. Because fame is a lie. What people think of me is irrelevant. Because the truth is that it's not just life under the sun. There's a creator with whom we must deal. And when you connect your ambition and your desire to pleasing your creator, life takes on eternal value. Today's choices matter to God, and so they matter forever. And they matter infinitely because God considers them and he has an opinion about them. Now, how do I know God has an opinion? Because we're supposed to have as our ambition to be pleasing to him because we're going to be evaluated for those works. Let's talk about being pleasing in the Bible. Because this word eurestos is a pretty common, it's a fairly interesting doctrine that develops around verses that use it. And um, for those that would say, I'm already pleasing, I'm already pleasing, I'm saved. So stop telling me to seek to be pleasing. People that overdrive phase one to the exclusion of your performance, seeking to be pleasing to God in phase two, if you understand what I mean. Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your logikos, reasonable service of worship. That word acceptable to God is your restos, pleasing to God. Paul is not talking to people that need to become believers in Romans 12. He's talking to people that need to apply Romans 1 through 11 to their everyday life. And that's the turning point, Romans 12.1. It's the application section, how you live your life to be pleasing to, him, to God. He says it again in 12.2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, which is acceptable, good, acceptable, and perfect. You arrest us, acceptable. What pleases God? And Romans 14.18, For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. In the context of Romans 14, the way Paul is describing the ministry that he wants them to conduct. You, in your phase two Christian experience, will be acceptable to God. In verse 10 of Romans 14, why do you judge your brother? Why do you regard your brother with contempt? It's talking about how we treat one another. Verse 13, let us not judge one another anymore. I know, verse 14, I'm convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it's unclean. The context is re- respecting the conscience of the weaker believer, okay? For if because of food your brother's hurt, you're no longer walking according to love, do not destroy with your food which, uh, him for whom Christ died. So those that think you can't eat the meat sacrificed to idols, you respect their conscience and you don't tell them it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Come on with us. We'll go to the steakhouse. You can't do that with them because you're going to break their conscience and they're going to think they're serving idols. And that's the weaker believer in this context. Therefore, do not let what is, uh, what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. So you restrict your freedom for the conscience of the weaker brother. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This has nothing to do with unbelievers. This is about how a more mature believer approaches a newer believer. It's how you deal with them. You're my brother, you're my sister in Christ, and I'm going to account for your conscience and work with you just like you do. You would accommodate a child. I'm not trying to say we're talking down to someone, but you would protect their conscience so that it could grow, so that it could thrive, so that they wouldn't be shipwrecked in their faith. And that's verse 18, for he who in this way serves Christ and restricting your freedom is acceptable to God and approved by man. That is a mature thought process to go through. You're supposed to be the big 
big brother, big sister, and hold back on what you might do for the sake of their conscience. In 2 Corinthians 5.9 is our passage. Ephesians 5.10, we're trying to learn in 5.10 what is pleasing to the Lord. In Philippians 4.18, but I have received everything, Paul says to the Philippians, um, that he's received their gift. I'm just going through biblical order of Paul's letters. I've, ever, I've received everything in full of their offering, have, in, have an abundance. I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you've sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing, your restos, well-pleasing to the Lord. Your offering to God, we mentioned before, of giving, your offering to God, which you sent, on my behalf, the Macedonian gift to, to Paul is an offering to God. Yes, ministers of the gospel will, if we can, make our money, our living, the, the necessity for our living uh, from the, the work in the gospel. If we can't, we'll make tents, we'll do something in a trade, and then we'll minister on the weekend, as it were. But, and that's, we learned this from Paul, but Paul says, your offering that supports my financial needs is an offering to God, it's worship, and it's well-pleasing to God. And that's the only, the only way to think about it. The only way I can get up in the morning and talk to you and think about it, the only way you should think about it, it's, it's our worship to God. In Colossians 3.20, children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. You arrest us. It's our goal, our ambition as believers to be pleasing to Him. In Titus 2.9, urge slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing to those masters because it's well-pleasing to God, not argumentative. And that, boy, we need to work on that passage because that sounds like Paul is condoning slavery. Paul is saying wherever you find yourself in whatever economic circumstance or social circumstance, you do what you do for God's sake to be pleasing to him because even if you're enslaved, the worst thing, you're God's free man. And if you're a free man, recognize that you're God's slave. You are bought by the blood of Christ and he owns you. And that's the best news there could ever be. That's the, the Bible on slavery. In Hebrews 13, 21, equip uh, in the middle of the verse he will equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. God working in us what pleases him. And that's in your experience. This is your personal relationship with God. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Our destiny in 2 Corinthians 5.10 as we close is that we all have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, which is this word right here. Bema, and it's in a contextual form in the genitive singular, but the word is Bema, B-E-M-A. And uh, today in modern Greek, every, almost every vowel has gone into the sound E. So even U is E. A mystery became a mystery. Don't ask me how that happened. God knows that's not my problem. But um, they'll say Bema. If you hear people say Bema, they're pronouncing it with a modern Greek pronunciation. But I was taught an Erasmian pronunciation, and the Ada says A. So I say Bema. It's the Bema of Christ. Bema, Bema. The point is that there is a place, there is an, an, an accounting that we're going to face that is very much like in the, in the culture in which Paul wrote, in the Roman world, in every town, there would be a judgment seat. There would be a place where the local magistrate, whoever, the mayor or the, the, the prefect or the governor, would hold court and he would render judgments. And it was not a jury trial. It was a in, in whatever this case was, the judgment by the person to make the call. Moses says, I cannot, I can't 
judge this whole country. And Jethro, his father-in-law, says, divide it up, delegate the task down, and then you'd be the final decision maker. And so this is not about juries. This is about one person making a judgment on whatever the issue is. And what we're told is there is coming a judgment seat, an evaluation of Christ. It's him making the evaluation of us. We must all appear before the bema of Christ. Now, who's the we? I think it's very important. The Hamas, the we, is believers. He's talking to the Corinthians, and he's told them repeatedly that they're the saints. He's including himself. This is not the great white throne judgment. This is not prior to the lake of fire, or just before the lake of fire, where some are resurrected to life and some to eternal judgment. This is for believers an evaluation of your works. And I know that because of what he says next. We will all appear before the Bema of Christ. Hena plus the subjunctive indicates purpose, so that we may receive back, koimai to receive back, sorry, kamizo, kamizo to receive back. That's the best way to translate it. You could say receive recompense, but it just means to get back, to receive back each of us, to receive back the things through the body face-to-face with or in terms of, is a, is a circumlocution Paul uses, so I've translated in terms of, what he has done, finite verb, what relative pronoun he has done. So each, the things in the body, whatever he has done, meaning the things that you've done in your body. There's a recompense for the things done in the body in terms of what he has done, whether good or bad, whether agathos or kakos, whether good or bad, acceptable to God in terms of his character or unacceptable to God because not meeting that standard. I will shorten my explanation to this. That word bad does not mean just personal sin. It doesn't primarily mean personal sin. And we're not talking about you paying for your sins at the judgment seat of Christ. In fact, we're absolutely not saying that Jesus paid for all your sins. We're talking about the things you did with your life. And that overlaps with sin in a way. We're talking about the way you spent the capital God has given you. We have accountability parables of the minas and the talents that are very similar in the way they sound to this. What did you do with what I gave you? And the challenge is always, I'm expecting you to be a wise steward of that which I've entrusted to you. What has God given you? He's given you his word. He's put his spirit in your heart to abide forever. He's given you a mission that you know because his spirit inspired the apostles to write it in the word. In other words, you know what you're here for. You know who you're supposed to be. Are you being that? That's what we're talking about. I believe that you cannot divorce 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 from the mission God has given us all of making disciples. You can't divorce it. And please don't be divided in your life where you've got your church life and your regular life. Don't do that. I know we divide our time that way, but don't divide your heart, your life that way. This is equipping right now for all of life. That's the design. So what does it mean to go live it? Well, if I had more time, I would take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and that will be your assignment, America. Y'all read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, because that's the other key rewards passage where we're told that there is a consequence for our works. In that passage, Paul is talking primarily about himself and Apollos and the works that they've done, building on the foundation, which is Christ. 
And in that passage of gold, silver, precious stones, and wood, hay, and straw, there is no way to read those rewards outside of the context of the mission of making disciples. We know who we are because God told us. We know who he is because God told us. And we know what he wants from us because God told us. Index is coming. Index is what we called it in the army when we were having a field training exercise. The end of the exercise, all done, all done. You can take off your gas masks, end of exercise. It's one of the most wonderful things in the world. It means that all the work we've just done, good or bad, whatever happened from the effort, it's over. We don't have to pretend that we're being attacked anymore. We don't have to stay up anymore. We can start cleaning up our equipment and, most importantly, sleep. Index. Oh, praise God for index. But there's two different ways you can approach that. If you won the war game, that's a happy index. Index, and we won. And it's awesome. The other one is not as good, but you do still get to sleep and have an MRE. You want to be aware that time is short. And if you're young, you feel like it's long, but it's not. If you're older, you start thinking about how short it is and how many regrets you might have. Oh, please. The, The rear view mirror is useless. It doesn't help you. That stuff is past and all you have that you really can hang on to are the opportunities that God puts in front of you as you go forward. That's why I put the mountain in front of you. That's why I put the, the picture of, the, of the, the road ahead. Because you can't do anything about how it's gone before. There is still life in you. There is still the spirit of God in you. There's still God's mission for you. And there's still God's word for you every single day. So what do you need to do? What should you do with your life? You need to spend the time in prayer and in considering God and his word. As you read God's word, as you study, if you don't understand, that is wonderful prayer fodder. Father, I don't understand. Help me understand. I think I understand what it's saying, but I don't understand how I could possibly accept that. Help my faith. Help my unbelief. God, I know what it's saying, but I don't want it. Help me want it. It's a personal relationship with God that he's calling you to, and it is marvelous with our heads bowed and our eyes closed father we've heard today of ambition but it stands in direct contrast and stark contrast to the world and its ambitions father there will never be enough money for us to say we're satisfied because as soon as we have enough for the, the needs we know of now we'll start needing significance We'll never be satisfied in that pursuit. Help us learn that without having to experience it. Father, we'll never be satisfied in looking at the past and seeing how we could have done it better because our failures are in the past and they don't control us. God, let us lay hold of your grace and the joy of our so great salvation. Let us consider your Son and rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory obtaining as the outcome of our faith the salvation right now of our souls, of our time, of our efforts. God, let our works be glorious to you as we seek with open hearts and a sincere faith to be pleasing to you according to your word, according to the power of your spirit, according to all that you've expected.
And let us rejoice in the privilege of being called to these marvelous works that you've called us to. Don't let us forsake it. Father, those that we know and love that don't know Jesus as their Savior, we've said the gospel today 15 or 20 times. We pray that they would consider that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead, that they could have this eternal life and fellowship with you. Give us the words to say to them. Father, they may not be the direct words of the gospel. They may be words that ask questions that lead down that path. Give us the wisdom to know what to say and when to be quiet. Provide opportunities that open doors for us to share Christ. And Father, as you open those doors, give us the wisdom to walk through them boldly with compassion because we're concerned for the eternal destiny of our loved ones. Bless them with the truth and send a preacher to them. We pray it in Jesus' name. And we all said, Amen. Amen.